Oh, the Lord, thank you so much. Choir, praise team, thank you for this. I'll tell you what, she needs to keep putting that high octane water in that piano. She was, I'll tell you, she was on fire. Now I don't know why she puts water in there and people can catch on fire. But praise the Lord, I enjoy the beautiful playing and Courtney over here with drums and, uh, and this, uh, you know, the special music, Sister Kathy, thank you for that beautiful special. It just gets my heart going and, uh, and just helps to set the stage for worshiping God. I, I hope that you're enjoying worshiping God. Not just in the singing, but just, you know, coming before God in prayer. Giving your tithes and offerings. Fellowshipping with other believers. Sensing the presence of His Holy Spirit. All of this goes together to make up this experience, this wonderful divine encounter we call worship. Now, the central part of the worship experience, and that is where you get your Bibles and you engage in the Word of God with me. Now, I'm not here to, to entertain you. I'm here to engage you with God's Word. It's not so important of what I say to you as it is what the Word of God says to your heart today. I can't change you. I can't make a difference in your life. But I promise you, dear friend, the Word of God can and it will if you open your heart up to what God wants to say to you. And believe you me, from what I've been working on this week, God wants to say something to you. So open up your ears, open up your Bible, open up your heart, and just be ready. We're going to be looking at the same passage that we read responsibly this morning. Uh, except uh, I'll be reading it from the New King James versus the King James, so the wording may be just a little bit different as we don't uh, maybe use the Elizabethan uh, English, but the modern English, but the same message I assure you. And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, and we'll examine that just a little bit. And get your place over there, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. And the theme of the message this morning is our relationship to God and eternal destiny, our relationship to God and our eternal destiny rest on our proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's central. That is absolutely, absolutely essential to you and me in our relationship with God and our eternal destiny. The question that you might want to ponder, and I certainly have, is, is my knowledge of Jesus shaped by the teachings of the Holy Scriptures or the culture around me? Who determines more about what you believe about Jesus? Is it what God's Word says clearly to your heart, or have you allowed the philosophies and the teachings and the notions and the ideas of the culture to have an effect upon who you think Jesus is? Now, when I think about what we think of Jesus, tells in comparison to what God the Father thinks of him. Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, not in our text this morning, but out of the Word of God, Paul summarizes somewhat how God the Father looks at Jesus the Son when he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, and just picture this, every knee shall bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. You want to know what the Father thinks of Jesus the Son? Right there. Right there. He's lifted him to the highest point of exaltation and worship ever possible. And that's who God says his Son is. Now, around the theme of the message this morning, we're going to be examining this question of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus and his disciples find themselves again in Gentile territory. In fact, before we go now in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find Jesus going into Gentile territory more often and staying longer. Forgotten the nation of Israel as much at this point. They're going deeper into Gentile territory than probably they've ever gone in today's scripture. In fact, as we begin reading there in verse 13, you'll see where they go into the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan region. Gentile region. In fact, the name of the, the city, the region, Caesarea Philippi, was formerly known as the town of Pania. Named after the Greek god Pan. I know you've seen pictures of the Greek god, that mythological fake god, but, but all the same. You recognize him because he's the fellow that has half human and half human. He's got the upper torso of a man, except he's got big horns out on top of his curly hair. And then the bottom torso is, is big legs with hooves. So half man, half goat. I don't know if Bud Hutt's got anything like that on his farm, but I think he is all good. But anyway, I think I saw a couple of guys look like this down on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. But anyway, moving along. But, but anyway, that, that pagan god, Pan, sets the stage for this pagan region. And isn't it interesting that here in the heart of this Gentile pagan area, the Lord chooses to make one of his most monumental revelations that he's made today. It's not in one of the famous cities or landmarks in Israel, but it's in this rather rural pagan area of Gentiles that Jesus makes this great Revelation. You might say that this is the watershed moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. Because from now on, his focus and his movement is going to be towards the city of Jerusalem. He has only months left in his earthly life. And now his, his eyes, like a laser beam, are on the city of Jerusalem and beyond the gates of Jerusalem again. And on that hill, an old rugged cross. He has a mission to fulfill. And that's the drive of our Savior. But before he moves in that direction, he realizes it's imperative that he make his disciples sure of who he is. He wants to solidify the relationship that he has with these, the band of twelve out of all the multitudes who have come before him and witnessed him and heard him and seen and experienced the miracles, twelve men are following after him, his disciples. And he wants to solidify the relationship that they have with him and with the kingdom of God. And he does that by asking what I call the critical question. Every human being will have to answer the critical question. Some of you have, 
Maybe some of you have not. Let's look at that beginning in verse 13 of chapter 16. So Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's the critical question. Let's go on. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? You see, in a more abbreviated parallel of the same occasion, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 27 through 30, you'll find Mark describing the same incident, but in a much more abbreviated form. But Mark helps us to see that they haven't arrived at Caesarea Philippi, they're traveling along the road. So he pops the question. And it's interesting that in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9, parallel with the same incident, Luke tells us that Jesus, earlier that day, had finished praying. He spent time alone with God as the customers of the Lord. And probably had gotten underway to start and his disciples caught up with him and that's when he asked the question. So you see, each of the, the, uh, the gospel writers have a certain perspective to get the whole picture. The fullest description of this monumental moment is given to us here in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel. So there are two aspects to the critical question. First of all, Jesus is examining the popular perception of the culture around. He wants to know, what do other people? He's not talking about the Gentiles. He's basically saying to his disciples, what do the Jews, what do God's people say of who I am? And here are the response they gave him. They give them the response of, of all the, 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 the responses they've heard that, that represent a wide range of interesting enough reincarnations. For instance, they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. I mean, after all, Lord, your message is very similar to that of that fiery wilderness preacher. You, you, he, he, he preached repentance. You preached repentance. He preached the kingdom of God. You preached the kingdom of God. He had power and might and authority. You have, so some of them think that you are John Baptist to come back to life. You know, the head of self that. And then, you know, maybe another disciple says, yeah, but some people say that you're Elijah. Come back to life. That would be reasonable too, because you see, Elijah to the Jews is considered to be the supreme Old Testament prophet. And even in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, it, it, it predicted, prophesied that Malachi, that, that Elijah would come back prior to the Messiah. So you see, they, they think that maybe he, maybe Elijah come back to life. But then other disciples chimed in and said, yeah, but some people think that you're Jeremiah. Another one of the big hitters of the Old Testament prophets, if you will, known as the weeping prophet, the prophet who preached great messages of repentance to a very uh, apostate of Israel. And, and they teach characteristics in Jesus that they saw in Jeremiah. And after all, one of the apocryphal books of the Jewish collection of, of, of sacred writings describes how Jeremiah supposedly as the Babylonians were prepared to conquer Jerusalem, Jeremiah, according to tradition, took the Ark of the Covenant and the, uh, uh, the altar of incense out of the temple so it wouldn't fall into any hands. And the tradition of the apocryphal was that just before the Messiah came back, that 
that Jeremiah would come back and he would return the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense. There's reason we'll see where people would say, oh yeah, I, I, bet, I bet he's Jeremiah. And then for those that just didn't really know, they, they said, well, he, he believes he's a prophet, we just not sure which one. So you see, the, the popular consensus was that Jesus was sometimes a prophet. Maybe he incarnated a prophet like Elijah, John the Baptist, or Jeremiah, but a prophet. You know, tragically today in our world, the world still misunderstands, if not rejects Jesus altogether. If you go out on a street corner and just start stopping people and say, who is Jesus Christ? What kind of answers do you think you would get? In this secular, humanistic, Heavily materialistic culture and, and practically biblically illiterate cultures, you get a, a range of descriptions. They don't even know who you're talking about. They say, oh, Jesus, yeah, he was a good religious, a great religious teacher. Oh, he was a great religious leader. Oh, oh no, yeah, that Jesus, he was, a, he was a great mind, a philosopher, if you will. And some of them that today would equate Jesus with someone like maybe Gandhi or Martin Luther King. He was a great social reformer. Now, even the Muslims will concede that, oh, he's a prophet. It's like our Muhammad. He's just another one of the prophets. Or uh, the Mormons uh, would say, oh, he's one of many sons of God, along with Lucifer and the rest of them. And if we continue in this succession of, of, of works, life, we'll reincarnate, come back, and come back, like, and you get to will be a God. To the Mormons, everybody's going to be a God. And they would say, that's Jesus here. And then the Hindus would probably say, oh, yes, he's one of hundreds and hundreds of gods out there. But you know one thing that they'll probably do is they'll all stop short of saying that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus is first of all wanting to trust his disciples to get an idea of what are they hearing out there among their people and how much of this is influencing what they think about me. And now, the second phase of this critical question in addition to examining the popular conceptions of the culture, who's now honing in on them, and you and me, and he's going to expose the personal faith of his disciples. And so that's why he, after he asks them that, he turns to them and he says, but who do you? He's talking to the group. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus' first disciples knew him. They knew him accurately, and they knew him personally. They saw him. They walked with him. They talked with him. John, in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, as he's describing Jesus, using the term logos in the Greek, word. In the beginning was the word, and the word, Jesus, was with God. And the word was God. And the word was made flesh. Now, listen to what John is saying. Looking back in hindsight, he's one of the twelve. He says, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among men. And we beheld him as at the glory of the Son of God, full of grace and truth. You hear what John saying? He said, I didn't just hear about Jesus. I didn't just read about Jesus. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I beheld him. He was real. He was real. And John oftentimes refers to himself as the what? The beloved disciple. Not only did I know him, John said, I loved him. And he loved me. So the disciples knew him firsthand. And it didn't just happen all of a sudden. He had just all of the, uh, in one occurrence, over two years of seeing and work miracles and hearing his teaching and experiencing love. And even to this point, they didn't have a perfect understanding, if you will see, as we follow the gospel of Matthew further. And I say this to you today, his disciples today, I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. His disciples today must confess him Biblically and boldly. You know, Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Listen, in order for you to confess accurately, biblically, personally, who Jesus Christ is, if given the opportunity, and I pray that you are given the opportunity to do so, you must, you must know Him. You can't testify of Jesus if you don't know Him personally, experientially. You've got to have impacted your life. If you don't know Him, dear friend, then you can't define him. You can't describe him. Because all it is is head knowledge. That's the critical question. And on behalf of the Lord, I'll ask you right now. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? To move from the critical question now to what I call the inspired Respond. That is really part of it. He asked the question, and Peter speaks up. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 17, Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you. Happy in your soul are you. Happy are you. Simon, Simon, son of Jonas. The flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Something else that we need to understand as we look at this is how do we know what we know about the Lord? You know, if someone were to ask me, do you know so-and-so? Now, there's two ways I can answer that. If I know about them, you know, I hear people just say, oh, you're from Roxburgh. Yeah, yeah, well, no, no, excuse me, I tell people I'm from Roxburgh. Then I have to decide to them where Roxburgh is. But anyway, uh, you know, that's a year, and you know, to be honest, I, I recognize the name. Maybe, maybe something in the past, you, just, you know, you know, Ted, you probably have that experience. And I'll say, you know, I, I know 
I know I know the name. But I can't tell you I know them personally. You can be able to say I know them personally because I would, would have had to experience them and encounter them and they made an impact upon my life. My life. But you know, as early as John chapter 1 and verse 41, when Jesus encountered Simon's brother Andrew, and Andrew was convinced. Just like John the Baptist had told him and another disciple, he said, go follow this man. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew knew that was something about this Jesus that was not ordinary. And so he went to find Simon, his brother, and he said, yes, I think we found the Messiah. I think we have found the Christ. Based upon what John the Baptist had told him, and just spend an evening with Jesus. And that's okay. I'm not discounting that. A little bit later in John chapter 1, in verse 49, we find that Nathaniel, that Jesus had told him, said, you know, Nathaniel, Nathaniel had made a little sarcastic remark when they told him about Jesus coming from Nazareth, and he said, is anything good about a Nazareth? I mean, call. And I guess Jesus knew that, and he said, you know, Nathaniel, I, and he never met Nathaniel. Nathaniel never laid eyes on Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, Nathaniel, I saw you under the tree. And Philip came to me. Now, how did Nathaniel say, who? How did he know that? I mean, we were miles apart. How did he know that? I was under the big tree. Yeah, Philip did come and get me. How did he? And then he said, oh, you know what? You have to be some God. That's good. That's good. He puts that together. Now, let me tell you something. Andrew and Nathaniel really got to know Jesus. I mean, really got to know that this Jesus was more than a rabbi, more than just a teacher, more than just a social reformer. Listen, when they were out on the Sea of Galilee, as we saw in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, and the storm was about to swap their body in the thick darkness of the night, all hope was gone, and on top of that, they thought they saw a ghost, and it was Jesus. Walking on the water. Let me tell you something. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, coming to them, and they saw Jesus doing his little thing out there this morning, he got to thinking, listen, when Jesus got in the boat, and immediately the storm, Matthew says to Andrew and Nathaniel and Simon, and John and James, because all of them came and bowed down at his feet and said, Surely you are the Son of God. So you see, much later in the Gospel of Matthew, they really knew him. And what did I got to say about the nature of Simon Peter's declaration? When Jesus asked the disciples, Peter replies, he speaks this way, he speaks in a representative way. I believe Peter's not just answering for himself. I believe as he has before and he will later, he's teaching as a spokesman for the rest of us. And then and that's when he voice out, you are the Christ, the, the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And all the other disciples, yeah, that's right, Pete. You got it, man. Simon, I'm with you. Yeah. You see, Peter, oftentimes, like some of us, is a little bit impetuous, sometimes too impulsive, and he just brought things out. In this case, it was, it was a good thing to blurt out. Later, we'll find that he worked out stuff that he should have kept in his mouth. But he'll speak. He'll speak. And he did here. But, but he's speaking in a representative way, I believe, on behalf of all the disciples, maybe with the exception of Judas. So I'll say the 11. 
And let me tell you something. What he says is taken from a heart of inspiration. It's taken from a heart of inspiration that Jesus was not only the Christ, the Messiah, and it's coming together. And it has been coming together for weeks, for months, for years. He's been watching, absorbing, and, and, and God has been revealing to Peter and the rest of us, Simon and the rest of us, that his Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. Who do I mean? Who is Jesus to be? I'm someone to ask you about Jesus. Do you like so many so-called Christians kind of stutter and stammer and backstep and believe it? Oh, well, I, I, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I believe in God. Which works? I, I believe in the man upstairs. Oh, my goodness. Oh, do you cold names? I'm glad you asked. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I love him. He is the Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God, Messiah of the world. He's my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for asking. Can I tell you some more? John Hebbers, 21st century Christians, when we become so backwards when when the opportunity presents itself to tell people not only who he is, but who he is to us, how we just fall before our television screens in shame when we watch the news accounts of that Christian pastor, Joseph Narantani, over in Iran, who right now is under a death watch. He's on death row, if you will. He's been sentenced to die, not because he's a criminal, but because of his profession, his public and bold profession, that Jesus Christ would ask by the Supreme Court of that land and demanded to record of his faith. He says, how can I? How can I? Because that's no lie. When I have experienced the one true living God through his son, Jesus Christ. When a man is willing to give his life, leaving behind his precious wife and children, let me tell you something. He knows who Jesus is. God forgive us when we pack off. God apologize to the secular world in which we live. And Jesus points out, the source of Simon Peter's confession in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven, the Lord acknowledges this disciple's genuine faith. First of all, he gives Peter credit where credit is due. And he is expressing his genius. What Peter is saying is not coming from his head. What Peter is saying is coming out of the depth of his very soul. It's in him. It's imprinted on him. You can't separate it from him. It's like a spiritual tattoo on the heart. That's who Peter is now. And then Jesus helps Peter and the rest of them to understand. Can you come across this? Wikipedia, or Wikipedia, how do you pronounce it? You didn't come across this by some rabbinical school. You didn't come across this revelation by some soul. Let me tell you how you came to this wonderful, monumental revelation. It came directly to the throne of God. 
He revealed this to you, Jesus. The only way that you can know that I am the true Christ and the Son of the living God is that my Father revealed that to you. The Apostle Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 14. And he talks about the natural man. There are many natural people in this world. He says, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For to him is foolishness. And stop and think about the truth of that statement. You go out there and you tell the average secular-minded, materialistic individual with all their things and they are living their life or they're their own God. You tell them, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross to take the price from our sins. Some of them will just laugh you right back into your car. Then they make fun of you. Oh, you are so confused. You Baptist, you don't hear about it. That's fairy tale. So don't, don't get out of shape. Don't argue with them. The Bible says, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because that's foolishness to him. Listen to what that Paul says. Neither can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. So when I get to this part of the message, I get healed. That's the one I'm not really crying I think about the precious, wonderful gift of salvation. I think about how absolutely, wonderfully blessed I am to know Jesus Christ. I think about the billions of people walking on the face of this earth. I am amongst a remnant, a minority of people who know they're going to go to heaven when they die. Now why is Charlie Martin so blessed? It's not because I am who I am. It's not because of anything I've done. It's not because of my family background. No, no, no. It's only because God, the Father, through His precious Son, Jesus Christ, chose to reveal that to me. As a young, tender boy at 10 years old in a country church, just as I can see, for hell, the light of the gospel shone through to my heart. And I woke up spiritually. I came alive spiritually. All of a sudden, I not only knew about Jesus, I knew him personally. God revealed that to Peter. God revealed it to you. There was no room for Christians to sit back smugly as if we did this. Jesus said to his disciples in John, Gospel 15, Verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the only reason that you're going to go to heaven, dear friend, provided you know Jesus Christ personally is the Lord and Savior, the only reason you can lay your head on the pillow at night and know that if you die that night, you'll wake up in the presence of God. The only reason that you know that you'll live forever is that God in His mercy and His love and His wisdom and His grace revealed it to you. I tell you what, we ought to be standing up cheering and shouting and getting hysterical about that. And that's just a sweet thing, I guess. That all of it. But we need to move on. Because look at the critical question that inspired the sponsor. Don't miss the rest. Don't miss the rest. The divine declaration Jesus has got something to say now. In response to what Peter has said, Jesus, boy, does he have something to say? Listen, you've heard it three times. But I've written on my sermon, but slow down, Charlie. 
Because we're getting into the message I'm always trying to preach the time that I must slow down because what Jesus is saying now is absolutely essential. The divine declaration, look at verse 18. Jesus says, And I also say to you, that you are Peter, before he's Simon, you are Peter. There's a significance to that name, and we'll see it. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. Stop open for a second. Jesus is using a play of words to say something very, very important, something that's been misinterpreted down through the centuries by Christian church. The thing that Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that Peter is the first of a succession of divinely anointed individuals, hosts, if you will, who have a special God-given authority that makes them divine so that they can speak inspired words like God would. Now, no, Peter is great. But let me tell you something. He's not a place. How do I know that? Because if you go to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, and you look at the incident that occurred after this, between Jesus and his disciples, the disciples were debating with Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if Jesus had given Peter some special divine action, then I imagine he would say, well, of course, would you guys listen about the separate of Philippi? He my hand. He's got the divine and the ocean and the northern. He's set apart from everybody else. Well, Peter's number one. How do you feel? Because there's only a little kid up here. The toddler. He set that little child upon his knees. And he says, Whoever humbles himself like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he's not telling, go back to chapter 16, he's not telling Peter that he is set apart from all the other disciples. Now Peter did function as a spokesman because of the, he was a very person, outspoken person, he certainly was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Often Peter spoke on behalf of the disciples and he was a key leader in the church for several years as, as he took his getting started. God used the apostle Peter in a marvelous way to help that early church to get started. But then other disciples, the Apostle Paul came on the scene and Peter faded, if you will. The king reveals the construction of his church. There in verse 18, he uses the term to describe Peter in the Greek, Petros, which is a masculine form of the Greek word, which is translated small stone. You're, you're a little rock. I mean, it's okay. I'd rather be a, a rock than Plato to Jesus, right? But the city is a small stone. And upon this rock, Petrov, in the Greek, the feminine word, form of that verb, he says, or, or now, he says, upon this rock, no, no, upon this mountain peak, upon this rocky mountain peak, picture Pilot Mountain. And then, picture, the stone mountain, Georgia. I mean, I, 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 we wrote up on a little sorry thing up on that thing. That's what it's like I've ever seen in my life. It's the rock of Gibraltar. Jesus says, upon this rock, this rock, what is the rock? The rock is the faith of the apostles that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. It is upon that foundation in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 we saw that the church came together at the Pentecost. What did they do? They came and they diligently sought the teachings of the doctrines of the apostles. Steadfastly, they learned the doctrines of the apostles. The foundation, the apostles were laying the foundation upon which the church was born to be built. And Jesus is saying it's upon that foundation. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he said, By the grace of God given to me as a wise gospel builder, I lay a foundation and another builds upon it. And he said, let each man be careful how he builds upon it. We realize we are still in the bitter business of building the church today. The Apostle Peter says, we are living stones. Every one of us are being built into the church, the body of Christ. It's a foundation. Because there's no other foundation save Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Paul says that in Ephesians in chapter 2. This is 19 and 20. He said, Jesus is the foundation. The song that we sang this morning is what a beautiful hymn. Thank you, Brother Dow. The church is one foundation. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The church is not built on tradition alone. The church is not built on money. The church is not built on programs. The church is not built on buildings. Let me tell you what the church is built on. It's built on a foundation laid 2,000 years ago by some dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. Many of them, most of them, martyred because of their faith of disciples who laid a foundation to say there is one rock-solid foundation that the church is built on, and it is our professed faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Son of God, and He is the promised Messiah. And everything we do must be built on that. And Jesus goes on in verses 19 and 20 to speak to reveal the power and the authority of the church. In verse 19 he says, And I will give you, talking to his disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they, they should tell no one that he was, was Jesus the Christ. God was telling anyway. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We are living in an age that is becoming increasingly hostile towards the things of God. You know that, and I know that. We are living in a time where the church is gradually losing its favor with this culture in which we live. We're living at a time where church attendance is beginning to drop drastically. We're living in a time where, where humanism and other worldly philosophies are beginning to infiltrate the church, but the people sitting on the pews of the churches of this nation today, many of them are just as lost as they can be. We're living in a time where Christians are beginning to wonder, are we losing the war? And resoundingly, I want to say, as a spokesman from the pulpit, from the Word of God, Jesus says, I give to you, the church, authority, authority, power. He says, not even the gates of hell representing death, the grave, sin. He says, never will we prevail over the church. Listen, the church will be victorious. I like to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. In verse 54, he's writing to the church. 
looking at death. He says, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sin? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And listen to what Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives to us, us to the church, what? The victory, he says. He gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are among the very few people in the, in the world who can look death in the face and laugh and say, you don't have anything on me. We can look at the devil and say, get on out of here. You don't have anything on me. We can look at sin and say, get out of here. You don't have anything on me. We have nothing to fear. Because the authority has been given to us. We represent the King of glory. We represent the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Listen, we can look at a lost man living in rejection of the gospel and, and living in rebellion and immorality. And listen, we can say to that lost man with authority, dear friends, if you don't turn to Jesus Christ, if you die, you will spend eternity in the fiery pits of hell. That's not a subjective opinion. That is authority. We can speak that word with authority. You can also say to that little boy or that teenager or that young man or older woman who chooses to come to faith in Jesus Christ, genuinely putting their faith and trust in the gospel. Listen, we can say to them once they have done that and prayed to receive Christ, we can say to them with authority, you know what? You are forgiven of your sins. You are now a child of God. You're going to go to heaven when you live. You're my sister and my brother. Listen, you can speak with authority. Why? Because Jesus says, I give to you. Power and the authority. Church, stop being intimidated. Church, let's move on into this world that needs desperately to experience the truth of the gospel. Church, let's take with power and authority those that are in the clutches of sin and in the bondage to Satan. Let's move out. I love that song that the Lord Baker Trio sang, the church triumphant. And listen, the battle heated now. No doubt about it. It looks like the odds are against us. And listen, the forces of evil are jumping up all of their, 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 their forces against us and their schemes against us. But brothers and sisters, don't you hang your head. Don't you wave that white flag. Listen, let me tell you something. If you've got Jesus Christ on your side and the church does, we are his bride. He's the bridegroom. Let me tell you something. We're on the winning side. Like that old gospel song. I read the back of the book and guess what? We win. I read the back of the book, praise God, and we win. Listen, I read the book of Revelation, and it tells us clearly from the Word of God that Christians, as a body of Christ, we have God, amen? Praise His holy name. Know who Jesus Christ is. And listen, if you don't know Him, as your personal Lord and Savior today, I invite you with all the love in my heart to let Him speak to your heart. Not to your head. Get to your heart to realize that if you've never opened your heart up to Jesus by faith and asked Him to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life and to be the Lord and the Master of your life, and you're welcome amongst me on that wide and broad road that leads to destruction we call hell. But you don't have to go that route. If Jesus has taken to your heart, consider yourself privileged. Consider yourself blessed. Don't turn a deaf ear when you get an opportunity to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful privilege 
What a wonderful Savior. Okay, Heavenly Father, we come before you. Tremendous. The only one. God, we come to take the throne of grace and power and majesty and grace and love in the name of Jesus. Who is the Christ? The Son, the only begotten Son of the living God. Lord, may that question, that critical question, be settled in every heart here today. And may Lord give us the faith to take the power of your word, the authority of your word, and the leadership of your Holy Spirit to take that word to the world that desperately needs to hear. May other souls be saved, she Lord, according to your divine appointment. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the precious gift of salvation. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We love you, Lord. We love you and hold you up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.